Welcome to Conversations with Karalia, where we take a nuanced deep dive into all things related to spirituality, sexuality, power, and awakening. My name is Karalia, and I'm your host for this journey. I invite you to relax back, open up, and get curious. And don't forget to subscribe, like, and share the love. Are you ready to realize the self, to resolve your shit, to rejoice in daily life? Join Karalia's community via her online platform, The Toolbox. Get ready for a paradigm shift in how you experience yourself and your reality. The Toolbox where you'll find everything you need for the spiritual path, view teachings, practices, community, and a teacher who cares. Find the toolbox at toolbox.caralea.com T-O-O-L-B-O-X dot K-A-R-A-L-E-A-H dot com Good morning, good afternoon, possibly good evening. My name is Karalia and welcome back to Conversations with Karalia. In this particular series, we are diving into looking at the occupation at New Zealand Parliament that ran from February 7th to March 2nd, uh, sometimes called by those who were there, Profest NZ. There's been two interviews so far in the series, one with Matthew Tehuki, a musician and a facilitator who was on the ground at the protest and on stage quite a lot. Second interview was with Sitapati Das, one of the Hare Krishnas who was there on the ground for the entire time and chanting for eight to 12 hours a day uh, at the protest. I'm feeling a little bit nervous right now, and I'm just going to acknowledge that um, before we dive into today's interview, which is with Alistair Boyce from the Backbencher Pub. Now, Alistair has owned the Backbencher since 1990. This is the pub where all the politicians go to hang out and socialize and drink. And so he knows the politicians, he knows the media, and he found himself in a position of being kind of the bridge with the protest. Um, but I'm going to let him tell his story. Before we get to that, though, I just want to say a couple of words about this particular series, because um, I'm starting to take some flack for my approach for platforming potentially misinformation or disinformation, and for not necessarily asking the hard questions, for not taking a journalistic approach. So I wanted to clarify what it is that I'm doing in these interviews. My intention coming into this space is to deeply listen to the person in front of me and to be really open and curious and to inquire into their experience. I want the people that I interview to feel comfortable and safe and I want them to be able to share their perspective and what happened for them. Now, in doing that, it's not my role to point out uh, beliefs that they might have that may or may not be true or to dial into them or to tear them apart or anything like that. I will speak a little more about beliefs and how beliefs function, the purpose of beliefs within the human psyche 
after this interview because it's a little in depth and I don't want to take up too much time before we get to Alistair. Um, I'm really interested in what happened in protest and what I saw on mainstream media and alternative media, both of them, was particular biases coming through and I didn't feel like I was getting the full story from either place and I felt like if I, for me to understand what it was like to be there and what it was about, what the awesome parts were, what the not so awesome parts were, I need to listen with my whole body to people who were there and deep listen. So I call this deep listening, right? Deep listening means that I have no agenda, that I'm not thinking about what they're saying, that I'm not judging what they're saying, that I'm not dismissing what they're saying. And what I'm listening to is not just the words, right? Human communication goes so far beyond the words that we use. And if we get fixated on the beliefs or the ideas that are being put forth and whether we agree or don't agree, whether they're right or wrong, whether they're good or bad, we miss, we miss so much information, particularly related to the emotional landscape. And there's a whole piece in here around trauma as well, which I'll speak to at the end as well. So what I invite you to do coming into this interview is to take the same approach that I am taking. Listen deeply without judging or thinking about what the person is saying. Be open, be curious, inquire, right? Rather than going, oh my God, that's not true and that's bad and blah, blah, blah. Be like, wow, that's really interesting that this is what this person believes. I wonder what is giving rise to that belief, right? It's a whole different way to orientate to somebody speaking into an interview. So as I mentioned, stay tuned after the interview because I'm going to dive in and give a little more information around the way that beliefs function uh, in terms of the way that trauma is stored in the body, et cetera, et cetera, based on the classical tantra framework. And some of you may find that incredibly interesting, particularly looking at it from the perspective of why have so many alternative viewpoints flourished over the last couple of years? Um, so that will be after. But for now, I'm really excited to talk to Alistair. We had a great chat on the phone. He's got so much interesting insight information. So no further ado, let's bring Alistair on down. All right, welcome back to Conversations with Karalia. We are in interview three, looking at people's stories of what the protest at Parliament February 7th to March 2nd, 2022 was really like by talking to people who were on the ground and experienced it firsthand. Today, I'm so delighted to introduce you to Alistair Boyce, who is the owner of the Backbencher Pub, um, right there at Ground Zero. He wasn't in the protest, but he was very much involved with all the different things that were going on. Alistair, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us just a little bit of background on yourself so people understand um, what you do in Wellington and sort of where you're situated in relationship to Parliament and to the lawns? Okay, so uh, I operate the Backbencher Gastro Pub uh, and a couple of other small businesses, cafes, and uh, we operate at the Backbencher. Um, and 
opened it for a company in 1990 and we bought it in 1997. I've seen every prime minister and every government regime since involved in it. I've got a book site, a pedigree, so I'm an qualified chef, and I've been the publicist of that venture for a long time. Okay. Okay, you may have noticed a slight cut there as we pause to double check audio, but we're yeah. back and we've tweaked things a little. So, Alistair, as you were saying, you know, you, you've been there. You know the people on the ground. So let's go to the protest. February 7th, it was a Tuesday. Did you have any idea that this convoy of people would be converging on Parliament? Uh, we've had a few protests, um, but I don't sort of do social media much or anything like that. So... It was only after it started that I started to get wind of it. So I was caught up in the traffic and at backbencher. And it really was like a Mad Max movie, Wild West. There were, you know, motorbikes up on the footpaths and blocking traffic everywhere, horns going everywhere, music loud, um, people yelling everywhere. And that was for, like, many blocks around the parliament, all of Thorndon, really and all the way down to the railway station. Mm -hmm. And then when you realised that tents were going up and this wasn't just like a three or four hour afternoon thing, as a business owner in the area, what did you think? What went through your mind? Well, uh, I, I had uh, mixed feelings, really. Um, my a, a radical element of the protest did um, hit the backbencher because we were regarded as an arm of government uh, because we were having to carry out mandates with the vaccine pass checks. So we were targeted um, and my staff copped a lot of abuse. So we ended up shutting. We tried again the next day, but uh, my staff was spooked. And there was violence over it uh, on the ground. Um, so the best option was just to shut. But um, having said that, it forced my hand anyway because under traffic light red and the mandates, which was untenable and unworkable, um, I probably needed to shut anyway. I lose more money by opening in those conditions than by shutting. Mm -hmm. So mixed feelings. You had to close yeah. because the protest was happening, but because of what was happening with mandates and vaccine passes and red light settings, it, it probably was better for you to close regardless. Probably. Yeah. Okay, so at that point, how are you feeling about what's happening in the protest? Do you agree? Do you sympathise? Do you think they're all a bag of dirty rat bags? How are you uh, perceiving these people uh, that are taken over? <laughs> I had no view. Uh, I, I had to get educated. You know, like I had to sort of... This was the first protest that it had the level of... Um, vociferousness and anger and volatility in those first two or three days. And that was heightened by the speaker's appalling actions with the loudspeakers and the sprinklers and the police going in. And then just streams and streams of more people started arriving and the tents were set up all the way down to the railway station and all the adjacent streets. And it was getting pretty difficult obviously getting in and out because uh, we were right in the middle of it. So I, I just had to slowly start, you know, educating myself onto what this was all about. And it was the first time I've ever had to do that for a protest because normally it's in and out, pretty clear message, et cetera. Um, this one had a whole lot of things going on, but 
the only unifying characteristic appeared to be uh, that it was anti-mandate. And I was also anti-mandate, <laughs> so I was a bit conflicted. <laughs> uh-huh. So just to clarify, your anti-mandate, where did you sit on vaccination? I'm pro-vaccination. So okay. I, I sort of believe in the argument of the greater goods and science of the vaccination. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a scientist, okay? So it's not. I'm a political, I'm a student of politics and history, not a <laughs> scientist. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so there you are. You're starting to find out more about what's going on at the protest. You discover the unifying thrust of it is anti-mandate. Your business has, has had to shut down because of the protest, but also to a degree because of the mandates and the red light system, et cetera. Yeah. The cops have come in on the Thursday, arrested a bunch of people. Trevor's turned on the sprinklers and he's 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 blasting the music. The protesters are dancing along. It's turning into a festival now, right? Did, yeah. did you yeah. see a significant change in the vibe and the feel from the Thursday where the cops tried to take over the lawn, arrested a bunch of people, pulled back, and then we had the weather bomb come through too Friday, Saturday. What was the shift? What did you see? Okay, so on a daily basis, it was quite fluid and there were times when it was a really lovely peaceful freedom village in the inner sink but quite often on the periphery there was all the bad stuff going on and I've witnessed that my wife's witnessed that and um, so and then some days it would change um, so there was about a week there where it was really really well organised and the messaging was really, really good. Um, and it became an organisation and a structure that I became aware of. Um, and, and that was the Sunday, Monday with the cyclone. Um, so, and at that point, um, I had a call from a good friend of mine who was the HR manager in police for about 12 years. And she said, it's uh, clear the police are struggling with any form of negotiation. Oh, we've just lost the audio there. Oh, can you just maybe jig it? Sorry, Alistair. Yeah. All right, audio, but we're back. So, Alistair, you had the call from the, the woman in HR with the police saying, you, you need to do something. So tell us what happened then. So um, so she said, uh, you've got street cred. She'd been looking at social media and all this sort of stuff. She's ex-police, by the way. She's been out for about six, seven years, but she knows a lot of the hierarchy, et cetera. Um, so I said, yeah, I'll be happy to help. Um, so she got hold of uh, the hierarchy, who just set in motion a, um, a contact. Um, so... By this stage, I'd started to meet people and they had an organisation and I could see that we could, you could work with them. You know, like they weren't all hair-brained idiots running around like Mad Max doing wheelies on the footpath. They actually had, um, a lot of them had, uh, of the groups, had a good agenda. Uh, some of them were a bit wacky and there was a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, but I was meeting them all and there were lots of good people, lots of them. Um, so I set up contact. Uh, the undercover guy was supposed to come and see me at the back bench. He failed to turn up, so I went down to Central, had about an hour and a half with them. 
said, I didn't want to be a spy. I'm not a spy, but I want to help negotiations to resolve it and to, um, to, to clear the streets and to get some form of resolution. It was pretty obvious the country was divided. Um, and this was a significant protest, as significant, if not more significant, than the Springbok tour. So I go all the way back to the Springbok tour, and I remember that. So from there, I set in motion, uh, you'll see that photo, those photos of me and Hone, uh, who was the security outside the backbencher. That was where all the supplies came in. That was the supply route, um, and he directed all the traffic. So he maintained uh, my route in and out of the pub so I could supply my other new businesses I'd only just set up. So it was quite important for me. Um, and I made it clear that I'd like to meet with um, some protest leaders. And now I was starting to get intel through. People were talking to me, and some of them had even come to see me without me knowing who they were, uh, me knowing who they were. Um, and then I was starting to know a little bit about the different groups, and my education was starting to build. Um, and then very quickly it turned into... Um, starting to try and get meetings to get negotiation, um, which was very difficult because they were in a fluid situation themselves. So the whole thing's fluid. Um, and then on the Tuesday, the Tuesday late afternoon, the police started getting activated again. And it was still very intense in there. And it turned into um, a... It got very agitated. So there were thousands of people in there on that Tuesday. And it was the corner to the line all around the place. And there was word coming through social media that the army was involved um, or was getting involved. And I actually had an army captain in the pub with me just telling me what was going on. And he was incredibly concerned. So I was firing off the text and phone calls to the politicians that I knew uh, and who had some influence, but not in the Labour government, but in the opposition. So, uh, and I was saying, well, you've got to get this uh, mallard to turn off these speakers and let get the situation calmed down and get some dialogue and negotiation going and, you know, stop the potential for carnage and riot because that's what it could have easily turned into still at that stage because it was still so intense. And then... Um, David Seymour uh, agreed uh, at my behest <laughs> to come in the next day, the Wednesday, um, much to the Prime Minister's chagrin, you know. This was totally against her wishes and this idiotic call from Parliament that no-one was allowed to speak to anyone at the protest, no matter what. I mean, this was real politic. This was an occupation of an entire precinct around Parliament, and they weren't going to talk to them. It was just crazy. Like, and the police needed a hand. And there were no messages uh, or no infrastructure coming from central government to allow this. And as Winston Peters said, this is unprecedented. Mm. Like, but what did you make of that? Because, like I say, you've been there for a long time. You know, you studied politics, et cetera, and history at university. It's one of your passions. Yeah. No doubt you've seen other protests in front of Parliament. What did you make of Jacinda Ardern's decision to not speak to the protesters at all, from your perspective? Personally, I think she was out of a depth. And she didn't know how to handle it. And she was probably very scared. It was um, a lot of personal vitriol against her, mm -hmm. which um, was a bit over the top. Um, 
but it didn't have to be her. She's got an, the entire state infrastructure to start talking to a protest, and and the police needed help. Now, there's a fundamental problem here. So um, this government, the Labour government, wanted uh, police by consent, okay? Um, and part of policing by consent means that you're necessarily reactive. So Jacinda Ardern especially wanted protest to be allowed to peacefully happen and there to be no consequences. And, and then suddenly when it's not to her liking because of the serious issues that this protest, a lot of this protest were bringing up, she then refused um, to allow, uh, it stopped the process of a government working in tandem with police by consent. So there's Andy Costa and the police stuck out on a limb without any government support, and they've got to resolve it. Um, and at that point, the only way to resolve it was violence, which for most of us is unacceptable. So negotiation and dialogue, at the very least, to get some resolution and, and to allow the true issues to emerge was uh, incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and so I, I was stuck in the media spotlight. I probably had over 40 media interviews in three weeks, um, many of which never made it to anything, uh, but most did. Um, so I had a very quickly change from just a purely commentary situation to a, what I was trying to do was provide an infrastructure for dialogue and mm -hmm. communication and negotiation. Um, and the basis of that was that um, a lot of the parties could leave with mana and their head held high and the message heard, even though the government sidelined themselves, well, that, that could in effect be that, that they've allowed power to another being. But it couldn't be an end like it happened in the end with the violence because that didn't help. <laughs> and it didn't help the messages. It, it helped the, the haters. And, the, and there was way too much hate going on. Like, these people were vilified and they were the ones on the edges and the ones on the poorest perimeter and the ones doing the abuse um, were part of the protest and everyone's culpable but they weren't the core of the message that I heard mm -hmm. and that I met. So talk to that a little bit because I think this is yeah. an important thing for people to understand because uh, I've spoken of course to Matthew and to, to Sita Pate and yeah. their experience of the protest yeah compared to, say, the mainstream, what they were saying, there's such a, um, a division there. Yes. What I'm hearing you say is that there was the core of the protest, but then there was the periphery, and you witnessed abuse yeah. occurring on that periphery. Um, so explain that a little more in terms of the core, the periphery, what you saw. So they set up, they got organised, and the leadership of the groups obviously developed a communication, and they had um, meetings. and. They had uh, a hierarchy, and they very quickly started to manage. There's some pretty smart individuals in the whole thing. There's a military corps, and there was people who really did understand politics and movement, and uh, you know, uh, socio-economy, and and they realised that they had a very powerful position, which can only be a powerful position via the state allowing them to be there. And the only way the state could allow could, could evict them at this point was violence. So, uh, and Andy Costa absolutely knew that. 
So in the, they set up this you know, the wonderful Freedom Village in the middle, and I viewed that with Nick Mills from News Talk ZB, walked through it, you know, uh, and it was wonderful. It was, uh, you know, it was a rock band and all sorts going on, and, and it was, you know, they had the food set up and all the food tents, and it was really cool. Uh, but even at this time, it was becoming like an out-of-control rock festival, and... The organisers had their own protest security who I was liaising with um, uh, by necessity to keep both my business um, open and also the Keisha Department's entrance, which is adjoined to my dockway, uh, open uh, with the traffic coming in and out. And at the same time, the amount of supplies coming in was unbelievable into, to feed everyone and uh, as part of the whole infrastructure. So they have, they have a military core to the infrastructure, and their organisation was exceptional. I mean, these guys in their previous lives would have set up camps in, like, Afghanistan or Africa or things. So it was pretty easy in central Wellington when you got water on to the tap and all that sort of thing. So these are members of the protest that are ex-military Yes. From what I've heard, some of them lost their jobs because of the mandate. They so they've joined the protest, they've lost their jobs in the military or whatever. They're applying their military skills to organising this Freedom Village, etc. To, to, to ensure the points are being made to maximise the effect of the protest and the occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, so they truly believe in the, uh, the states taking it too far there are too many freedoms that have been taken from the people and they're unacceptable. Um, the, the vitriol against uh, Jacinda Ardern, a lot of it stemmed from the fact that she'd said, and I remember her saying that she wouldn't make people take the vaccination. But the mandates, no matter what anyone says, uh, absolutely made businesses conduct, you know, to sack people. and Because uh, we, we can't operate without... It has to be within the terms the state allows us, which is the mandate and the vaccine passes and everything else. Um, so it, it was, it, I believe they took it too far. They, they should have got to 90% and let it go. <laughs> you know? so just going back for a moment, so the, the Freedom Village, awesome yep. vibe, feels like a rock festival. People are being yep. fed. It's set up really well. There's, you know, It feels like a community in essence, and it's beautiful, and people feel yep. great in there. Yep. Periphery. The security working periphery. What else is going on? Well, the security getting really worried. So I was in daily touch with security, and I met the, both all the heads of the security plus the Hone, who was um, my daily security. Um, and by the Saturday, um, the second Saturday, it was getting out of control. So it was spreading all the way to the station, and they were getting problems with uh, drugs coming in via the gangs. And also um, reactionary issues where um, you'd get a whole lot of people who are downtown at bars or whatever decide that they were going to have a crack at the, at the protest. Okay, so on the poorest perimeter, they were coming in and they couldn't control the alcohol. So the amazing thing about the Freedom Village is there was no drugs, no smoking, no alcohol. Unbelievable. But you got out into the perimeter and there was, and there was quite a bit of it. Okay, so you had all the social problems out on the perimeter. And this is what, in the main, the public saw. 
And then there, so the um, the organisational body of which made was made up of those six, seven group main groups. Um, we're trying to manage this thing, and it was almost unmanageable, and it was very fluid day to day, and still quite volatile and volatile around the edges. And the the protest security, who were generally pretty good, but not. Um, yeah, and they, they weren't paid. They did it out of R or or, you know, whatever love, really, for the, for the, for the cause, which was essentially anti-mandate and freedom, and innate freedoms for, for the people. Um, so, but they couldn't control it. And then um, on that Saturday, two of them came to see me, and I talked to another one, and then I, I went through to my contacts in the police and said, look, I know you've had contact with um, the protest security, but they, they were really concerned, you know, about controlling this thing. There's too many social issues on the perimeter and too much going on. Um, and the police were, um, they came back to me later and said, look, we're comfortable with where we're at with our communications with them and the fact that we can keep it under reasonable control. And part of the areas of control that I was with was too, like in the railway station. So it was outside even the perimeter the protest security could control. But no one really had, neither the police nor the protest security had full control over the perimeter. And the inside, the inner sanctum, wonderful. Hardly saw any problems near the inner sanctum. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, per, the perimeter, there was a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, and I don't think that's, I don't think anyone could deny that. So then... What I'm wondering then, what I'm curious about is the mainstream media, when they were reporting, what they were reporting on, I'm guessing, was mostly what they were seeing in the perimeter, not necessarily what was happening, the vibe, feel, et cetera, in the inner sanctum. Is that yeah, so when, when the mainstream media came to the backbencher, often I would meet them at the perimeter and take them in myself because I had that street cred with the protest. Uh, or they would sneak in and I'd let, like, the Sunday when, after the cyclone, um, you know, when they were using the uh, dockway as a drying room. Um, the protesters were? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was, TV One came in and all that. They had their own security, you know. Um, but I was witnessed many times when the media was absolutely uh, viciously, um, you know, verbally, and uh, if they'd hung around, would have been physically attacked. And I saw it with my own eyes. Uh, and I would, if I was there, I'd have been there, you know, pull it back. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it, it was a wee bit. So they, they were tainted by that. Um, but also I've been, even in my own dealings with the media through this, uh, the cut and paste brigade is unbelievable. And the, the taint of the message is Unbelievable. So there's, there's a bit of fault on both sides. Not that I'm condoning the behaviour towards the mainstream media because it wasn't really acceptable. But mm -hmm. they um, brought a bit on it themselves by uh, not carrying out effective journalism and, and balanced journalism. But they sort of weren't quite allowed to in this situation. So they had to get through the perimeter every time to get to the inner sanctum. Um, so... They were abused, abused. yes, verbally abused and threatened violence. Absolutely, under um, and the project security, no one could be fully safe in that perimeter. Um, 
because the, the police were, they were normally in groups and the, the protest security were normally by themselves. <laughs> so if you can see the, the dichotomy uh, of control mm. um, and then you had the reactionary people from mainstream uh, society, you know, um, who were you know, drinking, intoxication, um, and heading towards violence, and then you had the more violent fringe of the protest group. And at times, um, and this was came to me through the protest security, the gangs were coming in with drugs, um, peddling drugs. Um, and then you'll get the conspiracy theory saying that that was the police. Well, I can tell you now, I saw the gang patches and the T-shirts being pulled over the gang patches. So... Um, it, it's keep you got to everyone's sort of got to keep a level head on it. It was an amazing experience of a protest. It was incredibly powerful. It probably won and would have won if that had an exit with dignity and the the messages intact. Um, but it's still out there. There's still no resolution. So it's it's still going on. Um, so that's the interesting is what happens now. So. There were all sorts of meetings at the back bencher. One was with Rodney Hyde and a whole lot of the hierarchies of quite a few of the different groups. Um, and they, a lot, a, a lot of the people in the groups do want to mainstream their message into New Zealand's political environment. But of course, we're, we're stuck with the five percent threshold with MMP to get into Parliament. Um, so their, their other option is to basically go through existing parties. Um, so that was all thrashed out, um, but it was all too late. So by this time, it was nearing the end of the protest, and they, they were losing control of the situation because the a lot of the tents on the lawn were uninhabited, and the bulk of the people were leaving. Uh, They've done their two the weeks. Last couple of days, so because you, you the last week, yeah, the last week. So the last yeah. weekend, and then coming up to. Uh, it was a Wednesday, wasn't it, when it all... Yeah, it was all petering out. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there were phases within it where the mainstream of the protest... So they had people on rotation coming in and out because no-one wants to sleep on a concrete for too long, you know. Um, and they had... So that they had people almost on roster coming in and out, and there was heaps of mainstream people who supported the, the, the protest and the movement. Lots. Uh, you know, it, it was primarily, you know, working class, but there were a lot of educated people who the, the mandates went too far for. The, the, the freedoms that were taken from the people was, were too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were kind of, st- in a way, stuck in the... You were like a bridge. Yeah. But neutral like- zone. I, I made it a neutral zone. And I told the protesters and anyone else, the back bridge has got to be neutral. So I can be a venue for meetings, dialogue, negotiation, facilitation. We had a meeting with Andy Foster, two of the top police guys, uh, three of the groups. That was when I thought we, we could get a negotiation happening because we had three of the groups at the table for like two hours upstairs in the back bencher. And then that night I had um, communication through from another three of the groups. Mm-hmm. But there was, still wasn't enough infrastructure and uh, enough um, people with real motivation to see it through. So some of the groups didn't want resolution. I mean, Voices for Freedom are an anti-vaccination movement, which is fine, but their goal was different to others in the movement. So when you're trying to get a leader, uh, a negotiation, the way the negotiator that I had on tap 
uh, and I saw it was that you had to start in court and you had to get everyone's input into what they wanted and then start in court to, for negotiation. And then you had to sort of, for want of a better way of describing it, but a way to understand it is, you like have a treaty of Waitangi, but not all the chiefs have to sign. So if we've got, say, four of the groups to get a resolution of negotiation, including the infrastructure, the key was the infrastructure. Because there's a physical... When you say infrastructure, you're talking about on the government side. No, I'm talking the protest side with the feeding, the tents, the showers, the toilets, the whole infrastructure for their society. So they've developed an infrastructure and it had military and very well-organised business minds and people. And they had the flow of money coming through 10 to 20 New Zealanders um, who absolutely passionately believe in, this, in the courts. Okay, so if those groups with the infrastructure were able to leave the message intact and with right. their mana and dignity, then that would have compacted the protest. So there was a window of opportunity, but it was lost. So why do you think that window offered? Because it sounds like you're working really hard. It sounds like you were talking to all the people. You're trying to stay neutral, trying to figure out what yeah. needs to happen for self-interest because yeah. you know, you've got a business in the middle of this. You want the streets yeah. cleared. You want this sorted yeah. out. But yeah. also it sounds like because you actually agree with the fundamental message, which is the yeah. mandates went too far. Yeah. Um, so all of this is happening. You're doing your best, it sounds like, to bring about some kind of resolution. Why did it fail? Um. Well, it still comes back to the government weren't prepared to come to the table. So the, the core of the protest, the only people they really wanted to talk to was the government because the government had enacted these mandates were unacceptable. So they, they wanted a resolution with the government. So without the government at the table, um, there was a whole lot of other really difficult messaging going on and six disparate groups to try and work through. So you had to have very, very competent mediators and negotiators Mm -hmm. uh, to do this, and it was still disparate. So the meetings that I was privy to, there were like three of the groups at, and three separate, and then one of the groups was out of favour because they were more of a violent end. And so there, there never became a clear leadership. Do you see what I mean? Like yeah, they do see it. Two, they had um, Bethany Church at one end, New Conservatives at another, Voices of Freedom for another, Convoy Twenty, like they're disparate. Yeah, and to try and so um, to get a negotiated solution. So in the end, um, all the without having a, an infrastructure to do that and the support of a government-led initiative to allow it, Andy Costa, the police got no support from government, mm. and and it's supposed to be um, uh, police by consent. That's consent of the people, <laughs> you know. So I mean, and Andy Foster, the mayor of Wellington, he yes. even spoke. To the yeah, so I, I got Andy Foster in um, through, um, uh, and I introduced him to quite a few, and then he was able to pick up the ball um, with the, what the police were doing, and that was totally separately to me. Um, so, you know, I was just trying to facilitate. So I got Andy Foster personally involved and for about four or five days there. We, we were getting close, but I didn't feel that... He had enough support either from central government or from his own council or from trained negotiators yeah, and mediators. Yeah, 
Peter yeah. Black from what well, I mean, the media anyway. Yeah, and so did David Seymour and so did I. <laughs> we were, we're trying to resolve it and we're getting flack and the police wanted help. We all did this um, with uh, police wanting the help and the protest leaders, the reasonable ones that I was able to um, communicate with, wanted it as well. So that there was a whole core of people, the police, the mayor, uh, a lot of the protest leaders who wanted to, to negotiate and they could have all retained um, power and destiny after their beat. As it is, that's all up for grabs again. Yeah, so. It's all in the air. Okay, so one other thing I want to dial into, I'm aware of time, we've got maybe five minutes yeah. Good. Okay. So yeah. you mentioned some. You mentioned about the media, and you did mention narrative. You mentioned that you did like something like forty interviews with the mainstream yeah. media, some of which weren't used. You were on the ground. You saw stuff. You saw what the media was saying. Did those two things line up? Do you think the media, when you said that the media had a narrative, can you? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the most graphic one. Right. This is the most graphic example of appalling journalism. Um, I got David Seymour over because there was an absolute crisis uh, and on the streets of Wellington that was a radius of about five blocks where it could have turned into a riot. We needed some political uh, mediation, okay? So he did the right thing. He didn't. He knew that was political suicide in the current environment. You know, he was going to survive it, but he did not do that um, for his own uh, promotion or... You know, he did that to support um, myself and to try and do the right thing by getting the narrative changed to one of um, possible negotiation communication. Um, so he came in uh, with Nicole McKee and I hosted them in and at the back bench and the back bench of Dockway. And we met with two of the leaders. I'll give you a couple of examples of absolutely appalling journalism here. So two of the leaders uh, were with us in the dockway. They stayed for over two and a half hours and met lots of the protests. People, swarms of people wanting to talk. But at the start, we had to, uh, had a meeting and David, David Seymour delivered the parliamentary demands, as, you know, Jacinda Ardern would have absolutely demanded. But then they both effectively got outed. One got outed and both through Radio New Zealand and Lisa Owen. So... They must have got a photo of them, and one guy got outed by virtue of his physical description, and the other one got outed by name because he actually... These had, are the leaders, the intermediary leaders. Intermediaries. Yeah, talking yeah. with David Seymour. Outed and myself and yeah. Nicole McKee. So I was just facilitating. So, so I... Um, so so uh, that night and the next night that they got out. But when they get out of it, that means that we've lost someone who's reasonable, who's willing to negotiate. So they effectively get sidelined out of any of the leadership group, right? So now we've just gone back to square one. So that, that was one, unfortunately, with Lisa Ryan. I don't know if she's aware of how, what that did or the damage that did, but it, it probably cost. So could that have just been um, a lack of awareness on the part of the media, not malicious at all, just just not realising the impact of publishing that information? Well, I tried to warn them that I had a media interview with RNZ that day um, and it was on, they recorded it on live on TV. Oh, yeah, they recorded it on camera as well. Uh, and I approached them during the afternoon because I became aware that this was going to happen. Um, and 
I didn't explicitly say because I couldn't, but um, you had to really watch what you're doing here and your journalism. And I was really quite serious about it. So anyway, that was the first instance. And then the second one was after David Seymour had been in um, that night. Um, so the next day I had a 23-minute interview with a, a mainstream TV reporter and a 10 to 15 minute on camera interview. And that told the story that this was a politician doing the right thing at the behest of a need in the community and society to resolve the most serious uh, political crisis we've seen since Springbok tour, you know, with direct democracy meeting uh, the parliament, because it was an absolute expression of direct democracy. Um, and then, so most of the mainstream media reported it with some balance and asked, like, David Seymour if, if he was being opportunistic or not. But one major TV channel, having all the information and the documentary witness being myself, who facilitated the whole thing, chose to absolutely brand him as the opportunistic politician. And it was appalling. Did so he use anything from the on-camera no. interview or the 23 minute? No. So they interviewed you to find out. They knew the story, on. they knew the truth, and they went with a straight, unfactual, non-factual, uh, easy. So they were the opportunistic media taking advantage of the situation. And so those are two examples. Yeah. Um, and part of it, yeah, I, I don't think that was acceptable. That was bad, sloppy, lazy journalism that just perpetuated myths. Um, and that's what a lot of the protest, it's journalism like that that really riled a lot of the protest. Mm -hmm. That's happened that's a lot. Only, um, that's not the only journalism going on, just to no. make that clear. You're talking yeah. about a couple of specific examples. I'm doing two specific examples that were really, really important to the negotiation process, to the dialogue to getting it resolved. And this is not just resolving it, the protest as it is now, it's getting it resolved so that, you know, should we ever have these mandates and limits on our freedom ever again? Like, <laughs> I don't know, our country and Western world uh, fought World War II against fascism and these sort of diktats. <laughs> you know, Ukraine are fighting Russia they don't want to live in a society where the state is absolutely overbearing. And, you know, it's about democracy, you know, like it's serious uh, issues. And So this is where you sympathise with the anti-mandate. Absolutely. Yeah. And to yeah. you, so what I'm hearing you say, just to reflect back on what yeah. you say, is that you have concerns that the way the mandates were brought in was potentially not necessary from a health perspective and that there's a danger that these kind of measures might be used again and that potentially it's sort of the thin end end it's thin end of the wedge as such yes. yeah those are your concerns yeah and it, and it could happen again and for no obvious reason <laughs> you know I, i'm not a scientist and i'm not a doctor <laughs> you know so but in my book if you get to 90% vaccination, and John Key said it very early in the piece, 10% will either really not want to get vaccinated or they won't. You've got to get to 90% and let it go and use other methods and keep the encouragement going and the positive messages, not the arbitrary state, um, 
you know, muscle of mandates. That made people lose jobs, their livelihoods, their businesses, their houses, and we still are. Like, you know, my businesses are totally on the edge, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's the livelihoods of my staff, my family, you know, and that's just my situation. But these people lost their jobs, their reputations, um, their families broke up. It, it, it was just <laughs> unbelievable stories that were coming out. And mainstream New Zealand, you see, they, their version of events is, uh, it's a bunch of um, anti-vaxxers with conspiracy theories and blah, blah, blah. And to a certain extent it is. And, and then mainstream view the anti-vaxxers as very selfish, okay? But it's still the only way I can describe how the anti-vaccination and anti-mandate movement, or especially the anti-vaccination groups of the protesters, that for them taking the needle was akin to rape. But it's really hard for mainstream New Zealand to see that and to empathise with that. We love taking the needles and love doing what they believe is the greater good. And I did too, you know, I'm one of that. But I also believe in the rights of people to decide what they take into their own body. I mean, there's fundamental rights um, human beings should have. And, you know, as I say, we are well worthless. So let's, let's move to the last few days of the process. Yep. You said that things are beginning to shift, that it was beginning to thin out, that a lot of the tents on Parliament Lawn were actually uninhabited. So it, after the weekend, it's sort of Monday, Tuesday, coming into Wednesday, what was the mood? Who was on the ground? What did you think was coming? It thinned right out. But it, um, did I know that it was going to end? Or did, well, did you have a sense that the police were getting ready to take action? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, they weren't going to tell me anything and they shouldn't. I didn't want to be in that position because, um, uh, yeah, I, as I say, I don't want to be a spy. Like, I want to be a facilitator for negotiation. Um, it, it thinned out, like seriously thinned out. And um, the cordon could come right and the cars were going, the population of the protest movement were going. Um, and then the, the mood was changing. So the radicalised element, and these people are easily radicalised, um, was turning into a, a more turn to violence shift. Um, and it, so the, the, the weight of the good people of the protest movement, there were lots of good people, um, they were either leaving or being slightly overtaken in the balance of the whole, it's very fluid, like it's changing all the time. Um, uh, and so on those days, it was... Um, and then the final uh, day, um, so it was slowly, yeah, the population of it was easing out and the weight was moving towards a violent edge within the protest. And then the police started on the Wednesday morning early. I was here before five um, doing my baking and stuff. Um, and I had to walk in. The police wouldn't allow me in. Um, and then it, it, it all started to unfold. And then the, the frightening thing was there were lots of violent people coming in, especially for the end. And they were like conspiracy theorists saying, police plants. This was not police plants. This was gangs and anarchists and people who wanted violence and they wanted to take state on. They wanted to take the police on and be a martyr in their own minds. 
<laughs> seriously. So the, the conspiracy theorists on both sides sort of just got to step back and just see reality for what it is. Uh -huh. uh, seriously. Um, and, you know, you've got people who want to be violent and they want to have a fight with the police and they want to pick up bricks out of the footpath and they want to be on TV like the ones in Canada and the ones in... You know, the ones that you know, the Hare Krishna guy was privy to and, you know, the violent edge, that, that's what they wanted. And the police gave a big window of opportunity, which the protest infrastructure used to get all their generators out and all their tents out and all their... Um, and they vacated. And Mosley Street was vacated in front of my eyes within three hours. <laughs> so that was in the morning, right? Because there was a big yeah. push. But they had the initial the thing in the morning. It was a lull until yeah. about three. So the police just held their lines. Uh, it was just continual communication through the loudspeakers. Um, that the grounds were closed. Mosley Street were closed. They came now. They came. Now. Yeah, they just continued. Um, and the, the, the police, it wasn't going to stop. That was it. And anyone with a brain knew that. And anyone who really didn't want to have to fight the police or the state got out. So the ones that were left were either incredibly um, brave and and um, peaceful, you know, like, like the Hare Krishnas or whatever, they won't fight, that they're just peaceful protests, Gandhi-like, which I admire them. And I'm sure they were protected in a way because they weren't fighting. Uh, but the 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 movement in, um, so the, the state you had to take that. You witnessed yeah. people coming in who had. I was surrounded. I was surrounded by gang members getting changed, putting t-shirts over gang regalia, or pseudo quasi like gangs who. Um, I've, for instance, I've asked for knives. So my dockway was occupied by a group, of, a quasi gang, um, and they were asking. They knew there was a kitchen in there, and they wanted knives. And they were not police plants, okay? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what I find curious here is that, yeah, yeah the protesters are like, yeah, it's police plants, and the cops yeah. are like, and the media... I'll give you an, like, another oh, example. Protesters, but... Yeah. I'll, give you another, I'll give you another example of um, how there were police plants, okay? This is, so there was one guy who came in, he was in the dockway, it was about halfway through the protest, and he was dead, and he had uh, an implant. You know, uh -huh. and but he was radicalized, okay. So he was potential for violence, disruption. He'd pick up one of the pavers and throw them at police, right? But the um, his photo got around the protest security. This is an example of a police plant. It wasn't, he was deaf. The police recognized him and the fact that he was vulnerable and deaf and politely took him away. But he in the back, he's not fully cognizant of everything that's going on. He was in the dockway, like I am with you, doing sign language to people mm -hmm. in my dockway. And I let him go for a couple of days. He's like, it's time to move on. You know, like, you've got to find somewhere else. You know. <laughs> uh, so, and he was labelled as a police um, plant. Right. He wasn't. He was dead. Gotcha. And he, and he was radicalised. And it was like he was living the dream. Mm. <laughs> the testosterone was charging. And he was taken the police on. That was way before the final day. That was a week and a half before the final day. Mm. So things like that were. When the dust finally settled and yeah. and it's all it's all done as such, yeah. how did you feel being at the center pretty much of that 
for three and a half weeks as such, all of the different, like it must have been a huge big deal in your life, like, oh, yeah. like almost taking over. How did you feel when the protesters were gone? And did you, you went to the blessing, didn't you, the next couple yeah. of days? Yeah. Lead, lead us through that. Okay, well, for me, it was like an opportunity lost because there was this most amazing direct democracy movement that was probably will turn out to be in our history the most important social movement um, since the Springbok. Um, so, anyway, I, had, I was invited to the blessing, uh, despite the fact that I'd been vociferously against the speaker, Trevor Mallard, and Grant Robinson. I was on national radio in response to Grant Robinson, and I, I did a parable. They allowed me to do a parable that I made up, which said that um, effectively the uh, emperor wore no clothes and the earth was not flat, and only one politician was able was going to put their head up, and that was David Seymour. And he was an adult, and everyone else had the same haircut and wore no clothes in the 120 assembly. And, and so both Grant Robinson and Trevor Mallard, who are known for years, like Ian and his parents have come to the back venture for 25 years. Um, we're on my pit list. <laughs> so I went along and I shook their hands and we had the Maori blessing. It was lovely. It was, it was a really good ceremony, you know. Um, and, uh, but I did make the point that I couldn't agree with what they've done or the policies they've done and that I would absolutely continue the fight. And that fight is for my own businesses, my own uh, well-being, the well-being of my staff and all the people I know and what I truly believe in regard to democracy and civil rights, um, which I believe that this government have trampled on. <laughs> And at that, that meeting, I had another. I had breakfast with Andy Foster and Andy Costa. I discussed consent policing with Andy Costa and my theory that police consent uh, cannot occur, uh, policing uh, by, by uh, consent of the public, can't occur without full cooperation with the government on the same wavelength. So the government cannot institute things like mandates, which are absolutely going to alienate it didn't take a rocket scientist to work this out. You know, they made at least 10% of the population really badly, significantly. And it, it, it's not a great leap to see, and if they were on social media monitoring it, that that protest was going to occur and how angry and vociferous it would be that the government had let the police down. We don't have a violent, corrupt police force. <laughs> I hate to have to tell everyone that they're not violent and they're not corrupt in the main. Mm -hmm. There's a few bad heads like there are in protest movements. In the main, we've got a, a non-corrupt police force and they've been let down by this government. And But mm -hmm. they came through in the end and it was always going to end like that. And it was just unfortunate that the messages about democracy and civil rights and um, the rights of the people versus the state are going to be potentially lost in the violence that marred the end of it. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is that what you would love to see is that that violence that marred the end is not the takeaway. Yes. What would, what would you love people, like you were there, you were there the whole time, you interacted yep. with lots of the different players. What would you just love people of New Zealand, Aotearoa, to know or to take away from this whole thing? Um, try and leave the extremes of both sides out. I'll tell you another interesting thing that happened too. A reactionary group wanted me to um, 
lead a reactionary force over of 10,000 through the police to um, evict the protest and occupation. Can you believe that? After all the messaging. So a different <laughs> true, group true. of people wanted yeah. you to lead like... A but that's mainstream New Zealand. In, in regard to the anti-vaxxers with the disdain and the whole protest with the disdain that they do. So you've got to get the extremes out of the way and get mainstream New Zealand back to a more harmonious society of... Um, of government for the people, by the people. It's all fundamentals. Mandates aren't good for um, inclusive society. We want inclusive society. We don't want to exclude groups. We want to pull groups in and allow mainstream democracy to be truly representative. It can't be. If the government goes, no, I'm not going to talk to thousands of people who believe in the essence of this protest. Mm. That is not democracy. That, that, that is mm. absolutely a, a, a route to a path of society I don't want to live in. Mm. So what would you like to see? You know, because like you said, this isn't resolved. This no, is still not. unfolding as such. What would you like to see from, from the government or from other organisations to resolve the issues that were brought up and the things that happened as a result of this particular occupation? Uh, well... I watch with interest. <laughs> so, I'm more of a student, okay? So I don't put myself up to be a leader or a soothsayer or anything like that. Um, certainly what I want to see is more inclusive government. <laughs> I never want to see mandates or arbitrary state force used or being needed to be used as a result of decisions of government. <laughs> that's what I'd like to see um, and the, that the state learns from this <laughs> and doesn't allow it to happen again so that we can have a more inclusive society I mean the hate and vitriol um, on, on the extremes of both sides in relation to the protest was unbelievable it was awful mm. it was like the Springbok tour and I don't want to see it that's bad <laughs> mm. Alistair, thank you so much for, for sharing this with us and also the, for the role that you play, for the need that you saw for negotiation, dialogue, discussion, and the fact that you saw a need and you did what you could to facilitate that happening. So thank you for playing that role. Keep up the good work and um, also uh, keep that history. It's so important, these, what you're doing. So the more people you can find that tell the truth, about the protest, I think will help everyone. <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity. That was Alistair Boyce, the owner of the Backbencher Pub. He's been there since 1990 and he's really interested in politics. So fascinating to hear his perspective. Um, something I feel like I'm beginning to get a grasp on is why what I was hearing from the mainstream media was so different from what I was hearing from people on the ground. Um, from what Alistair said in terms of the difference between being in the inner sanctum, as he called it, and on the periphery. So it's like the fuller picture is starting to emerge which I love. Now, I want to speak a little bit about the way that beliefs function. And I'm speaking from a classical Tantra perspective. Classical Tantra is uh, it's a philosophy, it's a worldview, it's a way of moving towards awakening, liberation. Uh, it arose around 500 CE, 
and was prevalent throughout Southeast Asia until around 1300 CE. Many tantras have been written. A tantra is just a book. Like here's an example of one, Recognition Sutras, written a thousand years ago. It's a whole way of looking at reality so you can see what is true. Now, beliefs. Beliefs serve a function within the human psyche. And the way that it works is that we're hardwired as human beings to avoid, suppress, or deny painful or uncomfortable emotions, particularly those that we literally don't have the capacity to feel, things like fear or terror or horror. So the way the psyche functions is that when we suddenly feel fear, for example, that because we can't feel it, we don't want to feel it, we're like, it's like we suddenly will insert thoughts, we'll go into the mind and generate a thought or a belief which kind of sits on top of the samskara, samskara is a technical word in, in tantra, sits on top of the emotion and kind of pushes it down so we don't have to feel the really, really scary feeling. And then that belief is the bridge, it's the thing that stops us from feeling, okay? So the belief itself is serving a function to prevent us from feeling something really awful. Now, what that means is you can't rationally argue with beliefs. Beliefs are not rational. They're there to serve a function, okay? And in the work I do, a lot of what's happening is I'm creating a space whereby people feel safe to feel the really, really scary shit. And when they fully feel it, then the belief no longer serves a function and the belief will melt away. Okay, so let's say that someone has... Um, Someone feels like they're constantly being attacked in their home situation as a child, right? It's an angry, violent home, and it feels to the child as if it's really painful. It feels really fucking painful, and it's really scary, and they're scared all the time. Then the child, trying to make sense of what is happening, will generate beliefs like the world is out to get me, right? And now there's a belief there, the world is out to get me. And so that belief of the world is out to get me will then generate its own defense system in terms of I need to be on, on, on guard. I need to have defenses. I need to attack people before they attack me. And all of this is arising from the immense terror that a child feels in an unsafe home environment, the belief. Okay. Now, if you try and argue with this person as an adult about, no, the world's not out to get you. That's, that's just your belief. That's not actually true. It's not going to make a difference to them. The belief is stored usually in the unconscious mind. It goes quite deep. Now, where this relates or where I'm really curious about how this relates to conspiracy theories, right, is leaving aside the factual nature of whether these things are true or not, whether time will um, prove that some of them were more accurate than others, do not know. But what I feel is actually happening is that in some of these instances, world events are triggering unresolved trauma in the system. So for example, if someone doesn't trust the world, right, the COVID stuff starts happening. It's really fucking scary. It's the total unknown. We've never been through anything like this um, in, the la in, in our lifetime as such. And people are going, what the fuck is going on? They're feeling terrified. They're feeling scared. And if they don't trust the government, et cetera, and they start to see some stuff that bleeds into that. Like, for example, they see the stats that suggest that only 0.5% of people who get COVID will die. 
their mind is already operating from a perspective of, I don't trust the world. They see that and they go, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. Why are we doing all these things if only half a percent of people die? And they're starting to make assumptions and leap to conclusions as such. And so their mind then starts to go, what's actually happening? There must be something else happening. There must be an agenda. So the mind is seeking to fill in the gap, make sense so that they don't have to feel unsafe. That's, the, I mean, that's the essence of it. So they don't have to feel unsafe. So they don't have to sit in the unknown. And because they've already got that belief of I don't trust, which is likely unconscious, all of this stuff starts to happen, okay? I'm just touching on this really briefly. I'm not going into it super in depth, but this is how the human psyche tends to function. We have unresolved trauma in our bodies. We have unconscious beliefs and we make sense of reality through the filter of the unconscious beliefs and the unresolved trauma. Okay. Then we form new beliefs based upon making sense of the world. Now, if you attempt to argue the facts with someone and present them with all the stuff because there is a survival reason attached to them believing that, because they are fundamentally petrified of feeling the fear and the belief serves a function, you can't argue someone out of the belief. You just cannot do it. So all the stuff around, you know, fact checking and presenting the right information, like it's great on certain levels. Okay. No doubt about it. It's beneficial. However, it does not address the way that we function as human beings and how we interact with reality with our unconscious belief and our unresolved trauma. And what happened with the mandates and the vaccine passes, from my perspective, is that it triggered a lot of people's trauma, unresolved trauma, and it created new trauma. And unless we have a trauma-informed approach that looks at what happened on a social level through a trauma lens, we are not going to be able to make sense of and heal what has happened in our country so we can move back to social cohesion. If you watch the interview that I did with Matthew, right, one of the things that he referenced was feeling rejected by the tribe, right? Now, the rejection wound is one of the most painful and deep to be rejected by your tribe. I'm going to touch on this. This is important. Basically, all trauma, all beliefs, conditioning, all conditioning, the function of conditioning is to ultimately keep the human animal safe. And safety for a human animal is always within the tribe. A human animal does not survive outside of the tribe. It dies. He or she, they die. Okay. So what is happening in our society has so much to do about safety, inclusion, belonging, and the mandates themselves exacerbated the wounds and sent people. If you're feeling rejected, if you're feeling like your contribution isn't wanted anymore, if you feel like you don't belong, you will seek out a new place where you can belong so that that terror and that fear of not belonging, oh, phew, I belong with these guys, right? And this is the so-called radicalization process that can happen is because people are seeking belonging. Human animals will always seek belonging because it's a survival 
instinct. Okay, so when I'm doing these interviews, one of the things I'm really interested in is deeply listening to people's experience so that I can better understand what might have been driving them from the perspective of unresolved trauma or new trauma, unconscious beliefs, conscious beliefs, and the way that they are filtering reality. Final piece. When, if you attack someone, if, if you'd say to someone what you believe is wrong, that is perceived as an attack. And the more that someone is identified with the belief, the more that belief is conflated with their sense of identity, the stronger the defense will be because it is, it is as if you are attacking the person. And the person, talking psychologically here, will always do, will always seek to defend itself, right? So you, you, you can't make people wrong. I mean, you can, but the outcome is not going to be great. Instead, listening, deep, deep listening with curiosity and inquiry and inviting people to look at things and to self-reflect and to wonder about what they might believe it, be believing or what they might be feeling is so critical and so important. Okay. Uh, there's so much more I can say on this. This is a big part of the work I do with people. I help people resolve trauma, et cetera, et cetera. I help them uninstall beliefs. Um, and I guess from my perspective, my lens, because I'm coming from this dual place of I have journalistic background and I have all of this yoga background and I work a lot with people and I'm very interested in how society functions and how the psyche functions and how we as social animals function together. I feel like this particular instance in New Zealand, Aotearoa's history is so important for us to understand. Like if we get this wrong, what happens? How do we reach out and bring back those who feel excluded? How do we become inclusive again? How do we acknowledge and heal the trauma that has been triggered or generated by the experience of COVID itself and by the experience of the measures taken to protect us from COVID? Right? I would hate it if the measures taken to protect us end up to be far worse than the disease itself could have been. Alrighty. Blessings to you all. For those of you who made it this far, my name is Karalia. This is the Conversations with Karalia series looking at the ProFest NZ from February 7th to March 2nd. Uh, I will be back next week with another interview. <sighs> Blessings, just sending so many blessings to you all. Are you ready to realize the self, to resolve your shit, to rejoice in daily life? Join Karalia's community via her online platform, The Toolbox. Get ready for a paradigm shift in how you experience yourself and your reality. The Toolbox, where you'll find everything you need for the spiritual path view teachings, practices, community, and a teacher who cares. Find the toolbox at toolbox.caralea.com T-O-O-L-B-O-X dot K-A-R-A-L-E-A
A-H.com. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Karalia and trust that you enjoy that nuanced deep dive into spirituality, sexuality, power, and awakening. If you love my take on the spiritual path and you're looking for more insights like this, then make sure you subscribe and like. You can also check out my website, karaleah.com. That's K-A-R-A-L-E-A-H.com. And subscribe to my weekly newsletter.